Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to St. Philip the Deacon and the uh, second event in the 2017-2018 Faith and Life Lecture Series. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, the senior pastor here at St. Philip the Deacon. Uh, I'm delighted uh, that you all came out on a cold fall day. Is it fall or winter? Uh, whatever. Anyway, thank you for coming out. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask at the start of these is how many of you have not been to a Faith and Life event before? Have not been? All right, good. Well, a special welcome to all of you. We're glad you are here. This is the 15th uh, season of these events, and over the last 15 years, we brought in all kinds of different people from different backgrounds to talk about how Christian faith is connected to everyday life. Uh, tonight, we're delighted to uh, welcome a, a speaker and an author and an Episcopal pri priest. You have his bio in your program. I always like to ask our speakers for one or two interesting tidbits that you may not find on a typical bio of them. Uh, so while we were driving from the airport today, I asked uh, Ian that question. And so two things came up. One, when he was in college, he drove from Maine to Minnesota uh, in the middle of winter and ended up in International Falls where he said the thermometers were incapable of reading the temperature. Um, so he was a little disappointed when he got here today and found that it was, it's been really nice weather, as you would all attest, and it's gotten a little cold all of a sudden, so sorry for that. Um, I think he's taking it personally, actually. Um, the other thing is he shared with me that his first uh, love, his first passion, his first maybe even profession was songwriting um, at a very high level. Uh, he's written a number of songs for well-known artists and he has even won a Dove Award. Is that correct, Ian, a Dove Award? So, yeah. Um, before I welcome him up here, you may have noticed that we have two chairs up here. When we chatted a couple uh, weeks ago about tonight, uh, he actually suggested that we do this a little differently than we do most of our Faith in Life events. We've done one other event like this, but it's going to be sort of an actor's studio format. Um, so I will ask him some questions uh, for the presentation portion. When we're done with that, you will all have an opportunity to ask your own questions at one of the mics. So that format will remain um, the same. So as we begin, will you join me in welcoming Ian Cron? So welcome to Between Two Ferns. <laughs> does anyone know that? Uh, does anyone know Zach Galifianakis? Okay, oh yeah, one. All right, <laughs> he'd be delighted. Welcome, Ian, we're glad you're here. Uh, so I'm gonna, my first question is just, well, and actually maybe just to give you all a roadmap. If you have his book, which is available in the Narthex, by the way, uh, the roadmap to you, the subtitle is An Enneagram Journey to self-discovery. So the framework here is gonna be about half and half for this presentation, uh, one half about the Enneagram, this is the plan at least, and then one half about self-discovery, okay? So the first question is a single word, Ennea what? Question mark. <laughs> uh, so I don't wanna bore you uh, from the get-go. How many of you read the book or have the book or? Okay, all right. So. You all can just hang with me. Um, so my mother, 
<laughs> By the way, I have to always turn my phone off when, I, when I'm speaking because inevitably my, my mother has an antenna. She knows that I have a mic on and I'm in front of people and she calls. Oh, okay. She's 90 years old and for 75 of those 90 years she has smoked a pack of Pall Malls every single day. She eats bacon with impunity. <laughs> I've never seen her exercise. She sleeps in high heels. And <laughs> so when I told her I was writing this book, right, I said, she said, so I'm a, I'm a, uh, uh, a recovering alcoholic, 30 years this February. And yeah, thank you. And so I, my mother always calls us to see if I'm still working. <laughs> you know? It's like, she's like, every other day, she's like, what are you working on? You know, that sort of thing. She sounds like Joan Rivers, like, but with bronchitis. Anyway, so I called her up and she says, your sister tells me you're writing a book on the angiogram. <laughs> malapropisms is my mother. My mother majored in malapropisms. So I said, no, I'm writing a book on the Enneagram. She goes, what do you know about angiograms anyway? You know? So anyhow, yeah, the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a ancient personality typology. The word actually comes from the Greek, right? Ennea, nine, gram, drawing. So it's really just a nine-pointed uh, figure around which are located nine basic personality types, okay? Which are, if you saw the diagram itself, you would know that they are observably different, but interconnected. It's a very dynamic system of personality. We don't know, really, the history of it is quite opaque. We, we, we believe, uh, depending on what lineage of you come through with this thing, but that we have pieces of it with the desert mothers and fathers of the Christian tradition. You can find it, pieces of it that are echoing through some of the mystic Islam, the Sufi, uh, and also uh, in Judaism, in Kabbalah, right? So I think what we have is perennial wisdom. You know, it's just perennial wisdom that emerges out of multiple traditions. And, and uh, um, you know, it's uncannily accurate. It's a little spooky. I mean, you know, right? I mean, it's a little, it's, you read it and you go, oh, oh. That, that, that person's been reading my mail. That person is inside my head, like watching the movie of my life. It's pretty great. Okay, so you said there are nine basic types. You want to walk us through what those are? Sure. Uh, quickly, though. Yeah. Okay, so nine types. Uh, each type, this is by way of introduction, e each type has a underlying or unconscious motivation that powerfully influences the way that type acts, thinks, feels, sees the world, re responds and relates to, to other people. So I'm just gonna run through them very, very quickly. Um, the, the numbers are not, uh, there's no gender bias to any of the numbers. One is not better than nine. These are all neutral signifiers, okay? So ones, the perfectionists or the reformers, I like to call them the improvers, okay? Ones in the room, I got some ones. That's, oh, I'm in a Lutheran church, I'm not with charismatics, am I? No, okay. So, so ones, uh, these are remarkable human beings. When they, uh, they have their unconscious motivation is to improve themselves, to improve others, and to improve the world. 
when they're healthy, the gift they bring is they reveal, I think, and give illumination to the goodness of God. These are people who want to be good, and they want this to be a good world, right? Now, when they move toward unhealth, they go from wanting to improve the world and others and themselves to wanting to perfect themselves, others, and the world. And that really can lead to not a great ending um, for them or for others. Twos are called the helpers. I like, I like the, the word the befrienders. Beatrice Chestnut shared that with me the other day, a great writer on the Enneagram. Um, their need, their unconscious motivation is uh, to be needed. And uh, when they're healthy, I think they give expression and they embody the love of God, right? But when this superpower of theirs, which is the ability to uh, identify the needs of others, right, and then meet them, they're like psychic. These people are like Radar O'Reilly from MASH. Remember that character? It's like, they just come right up and go, this is what you needed, right? It's like, whoa, that's creepy. Um, so they have this need to be needed. When it's healthy, altruistic love. When it's not healthy, they become manipulative and calculating in their giving in order, it's a way of getting their own needs met without having to ask for them to be met, right? Threes, they're called the performers or the achievers. They have a need to succeed and to avoid failure at all costs. And by the way, they need to appear successful even if they aren't. So just the appearance of success is what's so very, very important. When they're healthy, I think they give expression and they embody the glory of God, right? These are people who get stuff done. I mean, these people are doers beyond our imagine, the rest of the numbers on the Enneagram's imagination. When they're unhealthy, their worldview, which is that the world only values people for what they accomplish in life versus for who they are inside, takes over. And they begin to, uh, they have this, uh, this superpower too, and they walk into a room, they can actually shape shift. They, they pick up on the preferences and the values and the cultural expectations in the room and they're able to actually shape shift themselves into whoever it is they need to become in order to win the room's admiration. They're ab so when a two walks in a room, they're not so much interested in admiration, they're interested in appreciation, right? Three's admiration, fours, Jesus was a four. I mean, do we need to go any further? It's just a, it's a perfect number. That's right. I'm a four. Uh, so, so fives. Um, so fours are called the, uh, the individualist. Sometimes they're called the romantic. Fours, the underlying motivation or the unconscious motivation of fours is a need to be special and unique. Fours perceive themselves as uh, missing something inside. It's very vague. They, it's as though they were born with a tragic flaw, and in order to compensate for this missing piece, they have to be special or unique, yeah? They, uh, uh, it's a way, of, yeah, it's a compensatory kind of life uh, for them. And, uh, but we're excellent humans. Uh, when, we're, when, we're, when we're healthy, very imaginative, creative, uh, off the charts, um, we, we are the most empathic number on the Enneagram. I think we embody the beauty and the pathos of God. We're very attuned and sensitive to aesthetics and, uh, you know, the, 
you know, the, the Bob Dylans of the world, Sufjan Stevens, Ingmar Bergman, you know, these are fours. Tim Burton, I, I, I'm speculating, by the way. Um, so, but when, but when we're in a bad space, we are very self-absorbed and out of our minds. Um, we are a lot of work. Uh, fives, the investigators uh, or the observers. I like observers better. Any fives here? Any fives? You're not admitting it, are you? The fives are like, I will not actually come out and tell people I'm a five, I'm very private, because they are very private people. Um, fives are the most analytical and detail-oriented people on the Enneagram. Their underlying unconscious motivation is to perceive or to understand. These people aggregate and, I mean, they hoover up information and knowledge about a wide array of topics, usually though about one niche subject in particular. When they're healthy, I think they give expression to the omniscience and the wisdom of God, right? In their truest expression of themselves. When they aren't, they begin to hoard not only knowledge and information, private, they are not very self-disclosing, private space. Um, they begin to hoard affection from the very people who want to love and support them most. Um, the sixes, the loyalists, you know, or sometimes called the devil's advocates. Uh, the underlying or unconscious motivation of sixes is to, uh, to find support and safety, to believe that they're safe and supported. And uh, when they're healthy, I think they give expression to the unfailing loyalty of God. And when they're unhealthy, they are worst case scenario thinkers. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's a six, he, like, he likes to say, I suffer from pre-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? He's always like this, you know. I actually had a, an aunt. <laughs> this is no kidding. My aunt, I can't say her name because we're live streaming. So anyway, the, it doesn't matter. I mean, she's gone now. But anyway, so, but, but you know, Facebook's everywhere. <laughs> I'm just saying. They might, anyhow, so literally I would say to her, I'm going to go see the Rolling Stones tonight. And the first words out of her mouth would be, do you know where the exits are? Hmm. She's just scanning the horizon, looking for worst case scenarios, and then mentally rehearsing for them. As if, you know, if I could know in advance what could go wrong, I'll be ready for it, and I'll feel safe in this unpredictable and chaotic world. Now, when they're healthy, again, unfailing loyalty, and living in a place of great faith, not certitude, and when they're unhealthy, it gets to be sort of a paranoid, you know, kind of zone of doesn't, again, it, 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 and all these numbers in their unhealthy expression, I think, actually just obscure that goodness. It's, it's, uh, we'll talk about this later, I guess, true self also. Sevens, you ready? Almost done now. Sevens are called the enthusiasts. My son is a seven. Joy bombs. They are joy bombs. Um, they, uh, their underlying motivation is to uh, future think about unlimited possibilities, fascinating ideas, new escapades, new adventures, new fun, all in service to avoiding psychological and emotional pain in the immediate moment. Okay? Again, phew, awesome human. Stephen Colbert, I think, is a healthy seven. Okay? Mm -hmm. I would like to be a seven in a lot of ways. Um, I'd like to be Steve, but I am Bob Dylan without the talent. Right. Uh, <laughs> kind of depressed and, you know, fixated on all the wrong things. Eights are called the challengers. Um, sometimes they're called the boss. Yeah. How many eights here? Yeah. You, by the way, you ever notice that the eights, the eights always go like this? 
The internet. Fives are going. Sixes are going. You know. Eights, man. I, my daughter's an eight. My mother's an eight. Right? My mom is an eight. Right? I'm an eight. Uh, so she is, man. She's a force of nature. Y'all are forces of nature, these eights. I love them. So eights, uh, they reflect, I think, the beauty of the, the justice of God. They're very concerned with justice, but they're very power-centered, power-oriented. They're, they're in touch with where the power is in the room, you know, and they're kind of, they gravitate toward it. Eights, their unconscious motivation is to mask vulnerable and tender uh, feelings, the softer, more innocent side of their interior world in service, uh, and also to, to not acknowledge it to themselves that it's there. So they really put forth this front of uh, tremendous, um, it's very armored, it's uh, like palisades, you know, coming up, very, very defended. And again, when they're healthy, they're fantastic. When they're unhealthy, they can devolve into being bullies, you know, being very unhealthy. Nines, finally, I think, that actually, the, the number two that I think is the number I most aspire to be is a healthy nine. I would love to be a healthy nine. Nines are called the peacemakers. Sometimes they're called the mediators. And uh, the underlying need of an uh, unconscious motivation of a nine is uh, to really maintain the status quo, preserve relationships, and most importantly, to avoid conflict at all costs. Avoiding conflict is really important to nines. Uh, and again, when, when they're really healthy, you know, I think, like any, every, other, every single number in the Enneagram when it's healthy is exquisite. It's beautiful, 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 beautiful. Uh, but nines suffer from sloth, you know, and it's a spiritual laziness. As a, as a friend of mine likes to say about her husband, you know, uh, you know, she says, uh, nines start off slow and then they taper off. <laughs> yeah? So that was a quick flyby of all nine types. You want to just go to their Q&A now? I don't know yeah, how right. long that took. But. Um, and how were you introduced to it? Uh, many years ago, early 1990s, I was at a conservative seminary, uh, and I happened to go on a retreat to a Catholic retreat center. I happened on Richard Rohr's book on the Enneagram. I was doing uh, a degree in psychology at the time, a master's program in psychology. I read it, and I thought, well, where's this been? I went back to the school, like, maybe that Monday, and I went up to my, my professor. I said, Have you, do you know anything about the Enneagram? And he looked like I had said pentagram. He just was like... You must immediately throw that book away. As though it was like a Harry Potter thing, you know what I mean? Like, like I was like, well, what are you talking about? And so that, that was my first introduction to it. And, you know, I was a, uh, I thought it was a bit paranoid. And I held on to it and revisited it many times in the years following. So uh, tease out, that why do you think someone like that professor reacted that way to it? Well, I mean... <laughs> There are a lot of anxious people on the planet, you know? And uh, in, that in that particular season of my life, in that particular faith tradition, there was just a great deal of anxiety about anything that fell outside the lines, you know? And uh, thankfully today, I'm finding that to be less and less the case, that there are more and more people who are saying, you know, I'll, as one pastor said to me, you know, I don't care where it comes from. At this point in my life, all that matters to me is, does it, does it work? Mm -hmm. And he says, in my experience, this works. And so nine, um, the first question is, I mean, you just said they're all equal, but which is really the best? 
Have I not made it clear? <laughs> um, none of them. I, I, can I just say one thing? Though? I, yeah. I think every single number on the Enneagram, first of all, I think human beings are exquisitely beautiful. And you know, every time I walk into a church or a faith setting and there's all this talk of original sin, and I'm not saying that you know, we all don't have some problems here, you know, and, that, and that we might be part of the problem, but I'm always saying you know, we need to also talk about original goodness. And I think the Enneagram, the beauty of it compared to other typologies is, is it will show you your original goodness and it will also show you that what's best about you is also what's worst about you. It will show you both what's great and it will also show you your shadow. And we need to know both in the spiritual life. Even, even if you're not a person of faith, it's good to know both of those things. Yeah? Because otherwise you will bang guardrail to guardrail through life unless you are aware of the ways that uh, you are relating to other people. Um, and I just think it's, that's, that's just an absolute critical thing to know is who am I, what am I doing here, and how am I relating to other people? How, how am I seeing the world? How does the way I see the world affect the way that I live my life uh, in, internally and externally? to the rest of the world. Did I answer your question or did I forget the whole thing? No, that's okay, fine. Good. It was not really a question. Oh. So, um, I answered your statement then. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so only nine, it seems like a small number. Yes. Next question. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, first of all, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram? Okay, good. Whoa. So you're all checking on me, huh? You're all like, I don't know if that's true. Um, how many, are you, any, do we have any gardeners here? People who are like into gardening? Yeah, of course we're in Minnesota. Any of you into snow? Does the, does the ground ever get soft enough to grow? Um, by the way, I just, no, I won't say about my international fall strip. Um, how, many, how many species or, or varieties of roses are there? A lot, right? But they're all roses, yes? Okay. So, and do some of those roses not look like each other? I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe some would be like, I can't believe that's in the same family, right? So here's the analogy, right? The analogy is we have nine types. Within each type, there are an infinite variety of types, and they may actually present so differently, you would not know they were all, you know, of the same type, but they're all roses within that type. Does that make sense? I can do the same thing with colors. I can explain this any number of ways. But So I call it the infinite variety of sameness. Hmm. Right? So I'm a four. I hated finding out there were other people like me. But, <laughs> because I, I, at the time I was dying of terminal uniqueness. But, uh, but there are an infinite variety of shades of four. And I am that special little snow, snowflake mama said, but I'm still a four. Mm -hmm. um, can you say a word about how a person would discover which type or number they are? Sure. So the first thing I'd say is most people come to learn their Enneagram type. They, they, they usually the entry door in for a lot of people is they take an, an assessment, right? Uh, now, let me just say something about assessments. All self-report assessments 
have a, like, I don't care if it's Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, Strength Finders, the DISC, Colby, Hogan, I can give a long list of these. These are all self-report assessments. None of them can tell whether you are sober or drunk when you take the test. <laughs> they do not know whether or not you are self-aware enough to answer the questions accurately. So they don't know, for example, if you're answering the questions in such a way because you would like to think you're that type. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you're curating your own type as you're going. I like them in as much as they are vestibules into the conversation, into the house of conversation about the Enneagram, but they are not reliable. Right? Nice entry points, not terribly reliable. Maybe 55, 60% of the time, I think. That said, the best way to learn it is reading and workshops or in spiritual direction with somebody who really, really knows it or the therapist who really, really knows it and knows how to use it prudently and wisely. Mm -hmm. You touched on this a little already, but um, I'll ask a follow-up. You know, discovering this about uh, oneself, doesn't it, doesn't it sort of unnecessarily put you in a box? No. Mm -mm. So I, 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 I often like to say that the, the, the Enneagram doesn't put you in a box. It tells you about the box you're already in and how to get out of it. I mean, let's face it, we all type, type each other all day long, right? I mean, you walk, I mean you, you, we would not be on this planet unless we were able to type people. We would have died tens of thousands of years ago. Because think about it, you, you walk down the street, you, you, we are people who uh, immediately, because of our way our minds work, which are very dualistically, right? We go down the street, we go, like me, not like me. Friend, foe. Good, bad. Do you know what I'm saying? We are constantly categorizing and typing and because if we hadn't, we would have died on the Serengeti about 25,000 years ago because we wouldn't have been able to go, lion, bad. You know what I mean? Like, so type, bad, lion. Um, so this is just part of human nature to, to do this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, what was the question again? Go back to the beginning. <laughs> Bring it, bring it I back. I don't remember again. You don't uh, remember? Oh, put you in a box? Doesn't yeah, so I'm put like, you in a box? Yeah, I mean, like, we do this anyway. So let's identify a few boxes. I'm not saying that it's infallible or inerrant. In fact, my favorite quote in that book is the statistician George Box, yeah. who says, um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. I love that quote. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite quote in the book because it's like, of course this is wrong. We're talking about the mystery of the human personality. This is, these are image bearers. These are, you know, but it's useful. You gotta have a starting place for the conversation and this is a good one mm -hmm. about what it means to be human. Um, and we're gonna transition a, a, a bit maybe into the more, the, the question of the true self. And we're heading that, toward the esoteric. Yeah, and how it connects to our faith. But, I want to go back again sort of to what I perceive anyway, and, and I don't sense this here, and to be clear, I, have, I, I don't believe this, but I sense there's some resistance among certain strains of Christianity to this kind of self-knowledge, and we found that out in a very uh, specific way related to this talk. You know, we promote these on, in email and Facebook and stuff, and one of the posts, maybe some of you saw it, um, included uh, a few articles about the Enneagram as background. And someone, I don't actually know who it was, uh, posted a comment that said, uh, I, and I'll choose to believe it was a charitable question, and I'm quoting here, why not just trust the Holy Spirit for revelation, right? So again, it's a little connected to that response you got from that professor years ago, but can you 
unpack that a bit? Yeah. In my, ex so in my experience, I think one of the greatest defenses that people employ to avoid having to look into their inscape, into their inner world, is religion. Religion is a great defense against having to look at your shadow. So let's just, you know, why don't we just wait for the Holy Spirit to do it? It's like, what? Like, that seems ridiculous to me. Like, maybe this is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> maybe the Holy Spirit is like saying, do the Enneagram, stupid. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, so this idea that well, let's just like, you know, sit back and then, to me, that's just going like this. And just, you know, kind of like saying, let's just sing a song, clap our hands and ignore the fact that the human person is a, I mean, it's a, it's a privilege that we have the ability to reflect. I mean, do you think about that? Like, we have the capacity to self-reflect. That is a gift that we should not turn away from. I think we, will be, we are sorely impoverished if we do. And then an easy follow-up or segue from that, again, moving us maybe to the more spiritual or whatever. Um, and you have a ton of great quotes. How many of you all have read this book, did you say? Okay. My, um, my child who's in college, thanks you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, e even in the first few pages, there are uh, countless quotes from some of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, Flannery O'Connor, Thomas Merton among them. Thomas Merton, when you say that, cross yourself. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> because Thomas Merton is maybe one of the greatest religious geniuses who ever lived. Yeah. Uh, but there's a quote by John, John Calvin, uh, who some of you may know we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this coming weekend. Calvin, of course, comes out of that tradition, a little different than Luther, but, and, and related to the point you just made, says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. So, you know, That's you, pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Augustine, I think I have a quote in there at the very beginning uh, by Augustine where he says, he has a little prayer, it's like, Lord, um, Help me to something to the effect of, Lord, help me to know myself that I may know thee. So, so, so think about this. If you and I are image bearers of God, which I believe we are, and you want to know who God is, would you not be the, wouldn't you yourself not be the best primary source, your first line of research? In other words, if you are bearing the image of God, self-reflection would begin to tell you something about the nature of God. You know, this is Karl Rahner, the great Catholic theologian, right? Like, we, we tend to think, okay, I'm going to focus all my energy on studying systematic theology or the Bible. I'm going to, you know, it's all this externally focused stuff, right? And it's like, well, why don't you look inside? Because if you bear the image of God, you're going to learn a lot about God by learning about you. Yeah? Mm. Instead of saying, oh, no, I'm depraved, right? Which actually is a wrong, that's a sort of a, abuse of Calvin, really, to, to think of the way that we... Most, most, so many Calvinists I know today, whoop, I hope I get in trouble here, are, are really Neo-Puritans, they're not Reformed. Um, and so they take it, the depravity thing to the bank and then some. Uh, so I, I, I just really feel like we, and so they, that, because of that they think anything internally is too stained. You know, it's too, it's, and I'm like, are you kidding? Like this is, you don't want to become a navel-gazing, self-absorbed person. That's unhealthy for anybody. That's just, you know, narcissistic, you know, introspection. No, no. But to be able to look in with 
what I, the, the posture of what I call unconditional self-friendship. Mm. To look inwardly and, and to be curious, yeah? and to be able to say, who am I, and what does that tell me about the person of God? That'll tell you a lot. And then another short quote, this one from Flannery O'Connor, mm. and who I, I love deeply. And actually, I've got a quote from her on my wall. I've got a framed thing from Merton. But she says, the first product of self-knowledge is humility. Yeah. And you talk, it. you can go anywhere you want with that, but you talk, at least in a few places in here, about be careful of acquiring knowledge about, for example, the Enneagram as a way to beat up on other people. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, which maybe you can generalize that, but uh, take that however you want. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. So in my mind, when I hear the word, what just immediately came to me is, you know, um, I think when you, when, you, when you study something like the Enneagram and you, you do some work around self-reflection, right, the point isn't to weaponize that information and turn it on yourself, right, uh, and use it in a, uh, what I would call, in, in sort of a, a shame-drenched way. Like, I think, I think, honestly, that grace and love are the two most powerful forces in the universe. But shame is running a close second or third. Shame is so toxic, so debilitating. And I think, um, we, so we want to be very careful when we use the Enneagram that we don't use it as just another, you know, arrow in the quiver of self-indictment, you know, prosecuting ourselves for not being enough, not being enough. Not, this is where all the shadow side is. No, we don't do that. Um, what humility does is it right-sizes us. Hmm. It's about being rightly sized, right? I am a creature, not a creator, right? And so... Humility isn't about debasing, it's not about shaming, it's, it's just a matter of saying, this is what I am. I am a creature, not a creator. And that's okay, yeah, it just puts me in there. So I think what, what O'Connor there is, is referring to is, it also puts you in touch with your need for grace, which is itself a very humbling transaction, you know, to encounter grace and have to receive it by saying, like it, oh well, like at the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. you know, we do this instead of this. You know? Like in my tradition, and it was probably similar to yours, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, and people, I always tell people, when you come up for the Eucharist, always go like this, never go like that. <laughs> that is what went wrong in the garden. Mm -hmm. <laughs> always come up like this. You see, this is the posture of humility. And can you imagine what would happen if every corporation, every country, right, every leader led us from this posture instead of that posture, right? And I think this is part of the humility is realizing kind of by nature, for whatever reason, all of us tend to do a lot of that in life, yeah? Taking instead of receiving. And I think what the Enneagram does is it shows us when we tend to be in this zone and when we tend to be in this zone. Mm -hmm. That help? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. That was pretty hot. Yeah, right nice. There, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you need a break or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sort of swirling around both these things, the Enneagram and self-identity, but to maybe go a little deeper into the sort of true self or false self or whatever whatever yeah. language you want to would prefer. Mm -hmm. I'm going back to this is actually Merton. Um, <laughs> and the. Uh, 
the quote that you got choked up about when you were first yeah. being introduced to the Enneagram with, uh, with Brother Dave. Um, and I, I love this. He says, this is Thomas Merton again, sooner or later we must distinguish between what we are not and what we are. Uh, and we must accept the fact that we are not what we would like to be. We must cast off our false exterior self like the cheap and showy garment that it is and find our real self in all of its elemental poverty but also in its great and very simple dignity. <sighs> Man, you know, here's the thing about Merton. I mean, I could just talk all night about Thomas Merton. Are you, any of Thomas Merton fans here? Yeah. I mean, unbelievable, right? I can remember reading the fifth chapter of New Seeds of Contemplation. I was 28 years old. I was sitting in the back of St. Catherine of Siena Church. I was going down the road of life like this. I read chapter five and I went, put your blinker on, boom. Changed the whole direction of my life. Mm. It's Merton who really begins to help us. And he coalesces a lot of teaching from the past around this topic of what does it mean to live out of one's true self and what does it mean to be uh, living a life of falsity? Yeah? of not living from the space of your true self, but from the space of a false self. He would say, and I'm quoting him, he says, for me to become a saint means to become myself. Now think on that for a second, because it's awesome. For me to become a saint means to become myself. You know, I grew up, I grew up Roman Catholic, right? And which was, I loved the mass. I was educated by Roman Catholics, not as good as the mass, uh, explains why I've had more therapy than Woody Allen, but the, <laughs> I loved the mass, yeah? And I then, in high school, was involved in Young Life, and, and God bless Young Life, and those, in those days, they were much kinder evangelicals, than in, so, that, what was a different, I don't wanna say kinder, it was a different universe of, you know, it was much lighter weight than I think what people now in this contemporary culture uh, think about when they think about evangelicals. And, you know, I, I don't, uh, would not self-identify that way anymore, but I have a great deal of love and a debt of gratitude to that community of, of believers. And um, Merton and this whole truth, so I was taught in that evangelical world, well, you need to become like Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay, the whole point of everything is you need to become like Jesus. And I think what, what Merton is saying is, no, there's, only, there's, always, there's already been one. We don't need a robotic, you know, sort of, in fact, that's just that imitative sort of faith experience is actually creating another false self. Do you see that? Like, you're, you're, by doing that, now I understand the sentiment. I'm not, don't hear me as throwing out the sentiment. I, under, I appreciate the sentiment. But the way that it sometimes gets distilled in the human mind is, okay, I just got to act and walk and talk like Jesus did. It's like, no, God wants you to be you. That, that, to be the unique image bearer of God, even within type, right? Um, and, and so for me, and, and Merton would say this, the whole goal of sanctification, the process of, of, the, of spiritual growth all comes down to making the movement from the false self to the true self. So when Paul says, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I live now, wait a minute, Wait, wait, go back, Paul. You just said, I have been crucified with Christ, and now you're saying the life I now live. Who are these two different eyes? Like you're saying one died, but now you're talking about another one at the back end of that sentence. Who are you talking about? So Richard Rohr, um, 
a friend and, and uh, many ways a mentor to me, distance by distance, he would say the way to really translate that is, for my false self has been crucified in Christ, and my false self no longer lives. The life I live now, right, the life my true self lives now, right, do you see the point? So it's this, so there is this pro progression in the spiritual life from the false to the true, the Enneagram reveals, I think, or begins to reveal what your false self is and provides a transformational growth path or the beginning of one, it's not comprehensive, but a beginning path toward moving from false to true, yeah? To being that expression of God in the world that, it, it, I like how Marilyn Robinson would say this. Anyone a Marilyn Robinson fan? Woo, boy. She was here a few years ago. <sighs> Gosh. She would say to complete, for in, uh, we need to know who we truly are so that we might complete the errand upon which we were sent here to perform. And what a tragedy it is if we go through life not having lived into that true self that we might fulfill the reason we are here, that fulfill the errand upon which we've been sent. Yeah? Mm -hmm. God, I mean, that's what it's about. It, it, that's awesome, yeah. Um, and just picking up on that, again, we're in, in the tradition that this church is, the Lutheran tradition. I like your collar, by the way. I would have worn mine had I known. Yeah, but with a purple shirt, you I said? was going to wear it with a purple shirt yeah, so I yeah. could say I was a bishop. <laughs> yeah, okay. Which would be the worst thing that ever happened to the church, just so you know. <laughs> would not end well for it. Anyway, one of the, uh, we, all, we all know one of the differences be between the Protestant and Catholic worlds is the, uh, the Protestants, didn't bring with them the, the, the um, idea of saints, at least not ones that had been grandfathered in uh, in the Bible. I mean, here we are in St. Philip the Deacon. Um, <laughs> which is a little bit better than St. James the Less, yeah. which I was a part of. <laughs> or St. John the Mundane. Yes. Uh, but that's one good. Of, that's very good. Yeah, that's Richard John Newhouse. Anyway, one of the mistakes that I think, and I, you can comment on this, but go, you, you've been talking about Christian wisdom, um, and one of the mistakes I think those of us on the Protestant side of the fence assume about the saints is that, well, they're all just this mass of uniformity, and of course, if you study them at all, or study people who have written about them, what you discover, and I think this just reinforces your point, is that they are, each and every one, completely and totally unique, mm -hmm. in the true sense of the word. None of them are like the other. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely, and, but I would say this. Mm. Um, having spent some time doing a great deal of studying in the contemplative stream of theology, and, uh, or of spirituality, I should say, and the mystics that were, got thrown out during the Reformation, right? Yeah. Uh, St. Teresa, uh, John, the Cro John of the Cross, um, Julian of Norwich, I could go on and on and on, right? These great giant minds of the spiritual life. You could boil down all of their, if you could just throw them all in the super collider and say, I would like to have a very brief, just a praises of what they were all saying. You could get it down to two words. Wake up. That's the entire message of the mystics. Wake up. Wake up. That, that sounded very severe. I didn't mean it to, but kind of, because it's like snap out of it is what they're saying. And wake up to the urgent immediacy of God's presence in the world. 
that when Paul says you live and move and have your being in God, it's like he's not fooling around. That's not like some kind of, he's like literally saying like right now you and I are living in a world brimming with God. It's not pantheism, right? It, it, what he's saying is that is, that, that like a, well, Augustine would have said it, right? Like this, he would have said, uh, for um, God is closer to me than I am to myself. Okay? So that's the whole message of those, of those mystics. And we, we threw that out of the tradition at the Reformation in favor of sola scriptura and then overprivileging the analytical discursive mind as being the only pathway to understanding God. And then throw out things like experience and intuition, you know, and all these other uh, ways of encountering God, these epistemological sources, right, mm. for, for understanding and knowing God. So I, this is again why I love the Enneagram, because it is reviving in a way, you know, the word mystical is so, such a moving target, it's so smushy, but it is awakening, I think, to the fact that, that there, are, there are sources that can help us wake up. Beyond just, you know, I mean, dare I say it, just the Bible. I don't, I don't mean to say just, but you, you, you know what I mean? The Bible is a source. But it is not the only source of information about who God is and about who we are. Hmm? So that's great because I, I'd be kind of, because frankly the Bible confuses me half the time. Mm -hmm. In a good way, I mean it kind of like short circuits me in ways that you know, keep me in the game because it's fascinating and, and moving. But, mm -hmm. yeah. So, and again, you've been talking about this in many ways throughout the night, but I'll just ask it a little more explicitly. You know, this is the Faith and Life series, and it's explicitly Christian. As I mentioned, all of our speakers, sort of the table stakes for our speakers is that they are Christians, right? With one exception, I think, who is a Jewish gentleman. Um, so talk a little about, uh, you said earlier that religion is one of the ways that we hide from ourselves, but what's the sort of, what's the positive side of our faith? Or, and, and particularly the Christian faith as it relates to the Enneagram or self-knowledge or the role of Jesus, P pick any of those. Yeah. <laughs> so I was asked on a, in an interview uh, a while ago, someone said, uh, so could you summarize the gospel and, <laughs> did you hear that interview or no? no. Uh, so the, someone said, did you, could you summarize the gospel in one sentence? <laughs> uh, and I said, sure. I said, we're loved. Now that may sound trite. It might sound, you know, reductive or, or sort of not intellectually very satisfying. But it just comes down to that. So can I just give you an illustration of that really fast? And then we'll jump to whatever you want to do next. We can do, I can lead a yoga class because I got this on. We can do anything you want. But um, I want to just describe that love to you. Do you know, uh, I, I remember seeing this with my wife. There is a look that comes across a mother's face, and I, I, across father's faces too, but iconically women. When they're holding a three year, three day, their three-day-old baby, and when they do, their face, the, the, they get this soft gaze. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they get this gaze where it's like, and their whole visage changes, they just, it's, and what, you, you know that but what's happening is they look into each other's eye. There's, there, there's some transaction happening here that actually transcends love, just can't even capture it. It's almost mutual astonishment, mutual wonder. 
of the other, yeah? But you know, in the Hebrew language, as I understand it from Maggie Ross, there's two words for see, hmm. right? We only have one word, right, for seeing. The other one in, in, the, in the biblical language, I think in Hebrew, is the word behold. Now we don't use that word, obviously, because if we did, we'd probably be cherry picked off the street by human services, you know, behold, the car. You know, not, don't. <laughs> don't use behold in passing conversation. People will get a little freaky on you. But, but, the, the, but behold means something different than see. Means something to, to see. To behold something transcends seeing. Uh, it is to mirror back to the other their inestimable beauty and their value and their goodness. Arguably in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, I can tell you that there is a whole cluster of, con of conditions that uh, you could trace back to what happens when this gaze gets interrupted or disturbed, hmm? somehow. And I'm always trying to tell people, that uh, God does not just see us, more importantly, God beholds us with the soft gaze of the mother. And if all of us could live in that conscious awareness that we are beheld, that God beholds us with the same loving gaze of the mother, and nothing we can do, nothing we have done, nothing we will ever do will ever avert God's gaze. It, will, it remains in perpetuity, it's forever is that loving gaze, yeah? So when I say we are loved, that's what, I'm not talking about, you know, Jesus really loves you. No, 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 no. Like, you, we don't, love is too small a word, it's too closed a system to actually even express how great God's love is for us. And I think that's what it all comes down to. Everything comes down to that. Boom, mic drop, bang. All right. Um, I'll ask you, you, the thing I was going to let you close with was that blessing from you were gonna let me Brother Dave. Oh, I said, oh, oh, yeah. But I mean, what you just said was awfully beautiful. Great. You want to leave it? All right. Sure. So thank you. All right. All right. Now. Now I gotta remember what I usually do on these nights when I'm not asking questions. Uh, we're gonna let you rest your voice for two seconds and then we'll give you all a chance to ask some of your own questions. Before that though, uh, I will do a couple of things. Uh, one, I wanna draw your attention in your um, program to the next event, uh, which is on the left, uh, inside left, it's with Peter Enns. Uh, so we're going to wait all the way till February 1st. We're going to get through the cold winter first. Um, and you actually know him. I do. Great so guy. Would you suggest Please. people oh, come man, here? Oh, man, definitely come. Yeah. He's great. So he does a lot about certainty and doubt as they connect to faith. So please join us for that. If you do not currently get our emails, um, you can go to the Faith and Life website. We send a few emails out in advance of each of these events, uh, or you can like us on this thing he mentioned called Facebook, which is everywhere. And you can find our Facebook information, yeah, it's, it's at the bottom of the, of the middle panel there. Um, it's a little early right now, uh, but we are always looking for our next speaker. 
uh, and set of speakers. So if you have ideas for that, you will see the, the back flap here has a, a place for you to scribble in some ideas of people you think might be good to come and, and visit us for an, a, an evening. Uh, we're always sort of collecting ideas, so please, uh, or you can email t them those suggestions to me. Um, and then I always like to say a few words of thanks. Uh, you know, again, this is the 15th year of the series. Um, it has never been a budget item of the church. Uh, it has been funded entirely from day one by generous individuals and organizations. Um, and uh, that has remained uh, for the 15 years of, this, of the series. Uh, so let me just say thank you to a few people or organizations. Uh, Productivity Inc., which is a local uh, company here in Plymouth, Cressa, and I saw Jim here. Thank you, Jim, as always. Honeybee Capital, I mentioned, uh, maybe if you were here last time, Honeybee is actually owned by uh, Catherine Collins, a woman on the East Coast who was a past speaker here and was so sort of delighted by what she saw us doing. Um, she has now become a, a sponsor, Anselm House, and I think Dave, did I see Dave Williamson over there? Yeah? No? Dave, you're here. I just am saying you're, he's on the board of Anselm House, so... Thank you for being here. Rapid Packaging, Mally Design, Sparky Abrasives, uh, Thrivent Financial, uh, Motive Action, and uh, Mastercraft Labels. And then all of the individuals, I won't read all of their names, but I'm so grateful to our uh, generous sponsors. Um, many of them are here tonight. Would you thank them uh, for making this possible? Oh. And uh, Jeff Elstad always plays guitar for us, so thank you, Jeff, very much for your music. And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna go sit down over there and get out of Ian's way, um, and you all are welcome to come up, one at a time, preferably, uh, to ask questions. Um, and again, there's a mic to my right and to my left, which I will turn on now. And if you wanna stand up or sit down, whatever you want. <laughs> Stand up, sit down. Okay. <laughs> oh, and while Amanda's coming up, uh, I should say a thank you as well. Cheryl Matheson, one of my colleagues, uh, I believe you're the reason he's here, right? Uh, Cheryl is one of the pastors here at St. Philip Deacon. You heard him at an event? No. You... She read his book and all of all them. Of them. All of them. So you, yeah. Anyway, Cheryl, thank you for the suggestion. Uh, Cheryl and Amanda, who's about to ask a question, always have great suggestions for speakers, so thank you very much. You get, why don't you thank her for making me aware of them? Okay, so having read your book, have a basic knowledge of the Enneagram now. Uh -huh. I'm on the phone with my sister, who has a much wider range. She's studied a little more in depth. She's like, you're having this amazing four moment right now. You're like super angsty. like." You're a four, you're doing this, you do this to yourself. Um, because she's a truth teller, she can use it as a weapon against me and we can talk in that language. Bad dog, bad dog. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but now having that little bit of knowledge, what are some really positive ways, um, practical ways that you see people able to take it into relationships, into their workplaces, into their families and say, oh, now because I know this, I can understand the people in my life in a different way. Yes, thank you. Um, Viktor Frankl, everybody knows Viktor Frankl, right? Man's Search for Meaning, genius psychiatrist, 20th century, Auschwitz survivor, has one of the most amazing quotes ever. He says, between the stimulus and the response 
What happened to her? She disappeared. <laughs> I have to come actually to you and answer the question. Between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies your freedom and your power. When you have self-knowledge, most people live in reactivity, like people in a, like in a phone booth with an angry hornet. Those of you remember phone booths, you know, it's like, ah, they're in reactivity all the time in their relationships and their interactions during the course of a day. They just get triggered and off they go into their personality, the ways of typically acting, thinking, and feeling, right? Which is not always great. So it's like a little teeny crack. They just go from the stimulus, right, in the moment, and they step right over their freedom and their power, and they just go into reactivity. When you have self-knowledge, what I think it does is it starts to widen the gap so that you now have the ability, once you have self-knowledge now, to step into this place and now you have freedom and power not to react but now to respond. So for me as a four, I'm a four, where before I might have responded to something with an instant sense of shame. Like, oh, this must be my fault. You, you know what I'm saying? Like it, Shame's a big theme in the life of a four. Now, because I have that self-knowledge, I can step into this space, instead of jumping right over it and going into reactivity, I can now step into the space in between and go, what am I believing right now? What story am I, what story am I in right now? Is it true? What would my life be like if I didn't believe that I was the, the font of all shame on the planet for a moment? <laughs> oh, that's broken and missing in the world. See, now I have information or that, and then more self-reflection to stop and go, ah, oh, it's not true. And now I have the freedom, because I have this, you know, information, this life-changing information, to make different choices than I used to make. In my marriage, with my friends, in my vocation. I just can't, I can't tell you how valuable it is, like, to be able to say, oh, I'm now making the four movie. Because we're all movie makers, right, in our heads? We're all spinning out narratives all day long, and mine all colored like in the four zone. And I can just go, oh, there, there it goes. That's hysterical. I don't have to act on that like I used to. I don't have to stay here if I don't want to. I just know it's part of that kind of repetitious pattern that keeps showing up. And with unconditional self-friendship, not shaming myself, going, oh, you did it. You know, it's just like going, Maybe I, I might even look at it, because I think this is what God would have for us. I might be able to look at it with the soft gaze of the mother, but myself giving it to myself. And then it begins, you realize it's not monolithic, it's vaporous. And it can, might just evaporate on you. Hope that helped. It felt good. <laughs> you said earlier that it's a gift to be able to, of, of us for having self-reflection. Is that unique to hum humanity? And is that an expression of God's image? Yeah, great question. I can't speak. Uh, I, I know that many, many people would say that what differentiates human beings from other creatures is the capacity for self-reflection. Uh, so for example, we don't live out of the limbic system as like many animals do exclusively where it's all about reacting, right? It's all about instinct. We can actually stop and say to ourselves, why am I feeling this way? Why, why am I acting this way? Why, why, what's happening in my interior world? Or what, how does my history affect my present? Uh, how do I, how do, why am I always actually living in the future instead of in the present? I mean, we, we have this remarkable capacity, 
right? Now, I think, I'd like to believe that, <laughs> because I'm a Ford, that only human beings have that capacity. I can't speak for the dolphins, but I, um, I do think that it is a reflection of the fact that uh, we are made in the image of this wonder, wonderful mother, father, God. And that it is part of our gifting and uh, part of our burden to be able to self-reflect. But what a gift. What a gift. Where would art be without it? Where would great music be? Where would, would we have Mahler? <laughs> would we have Arvo Parrot? I mean, I can just go on and on, you know, with just examples of what, what power of self-reflection. Yes? Um, one of the things that the Enneagram helped my family with was a moment of crisis when mm. grandfather had to have the car taken away from him, the keys, because mm. he's an eight. And we didn't know mm. anything about the Enneagram, but it helped us tremendously to understand what his turmoil was, because he, he was very angry. <laughs> um, his power was taken away. Um, in the moment that is for some a crisis today, can you give any insight, and I know you can't tell us what number somebody else is, but can you help us understand the inner landscape or inscape of President Trump? <laughs> really? <laughs> Please. <laughs> Woo! This is on Facebook. Oh man, that is always so hard because I have no idea where I am and who I'm speaking to. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> making America eight again. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, that was pretty funny actually. You'll run with it. Um, I can't tell you because I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you why. And I, I'm joking when I made that comment. Um, you cannot, first of all, you can't type anybody else. When I've mentioned names, it's all speculative, based, but because you can't read the unconscious or underlying motivations that are driving the characteristics and the traits. Let me tell you something right now so you all know. You are, each of you is all nine numbers. You are all nine numbers. And during the course of today, you've probably acted like with core features of all characteristics and traits of all those numbers. They're all available to you. We should really say that I am a dominant type four, not a four. I'm a dominant type four, okay? Which is to say, that's my default position. It's where I just kind of gravitationally pull and go to. Doesn't mean I don't have all this other stuff available to me, right? In fact, the healthiest place on the Enneagram is in that wide open white field, dead in the middle, where there's no type where you're not clinging to one and therefore not having, uh, of making yourself available to all. I mean, people say to me, what number is Jesus? And I go, no number. I think the great spiritual masters were all no number. They lived in that white field in the middle of that diagram where there's nothing and where all of those things were available to them in equal measure to them. Hmm? That to me is the ultimate of health. And I think, by the way, that's why I say hi, if I could be anything, I would be a healthy nine because I think nines are spiritually advantaged in that way because they can see the world through the eyes of so many people when they actually have the ability to see the world through their own eyes, which is what they have trouble doing. 
as well as everybody else. I think they, they have such giant hearts. They're the most natural contemplatives and mystics that I know. To answer your question about Donald Trump, I can't read. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm blaming you. Um, that's, that's Pastor but Matheson. My, my, but my, yeah. point, my point is just this. I can't read the underlying motivations driving the characteristics and traits that he exhibits. Uh, so, yes, does he have a lot of the characteristics and traits of an eight? Yes, he also has the same characteristics and traits of what we call a counterphobic six. He could also be a three. That, I mean, there's so many. Listen, the Enneagram can't account for everything. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's a watercolor, not an x-ray. You, so we have to treat it with humility and, and not expect it to do things it can't do, like diagnose uh, a person's behavior. We, gotta get, uh, we have to get under the, the waterline of consciousness down below to be able to figure out what's driving it. Characteristics and traits, clues. Determinative, find the underlying motivation. I do have an opinion, but I will not actually give it. <laughs> Go ahead. So much of what I've always understood about myself, I've understood in the context of my birth order position in my family uh -huh. and the environment of the household in which I grew up. Yes. So how does that connect to and relate to the Enneagram? Yeah, so um, I think those are, you know, again, we're talking, we're in the realm of mystery here, right? As to who, how we become the people that we are, yeah. Um, so I think birth order could be important, although I have to say the Enneagram birth order doesn't really play a, a role. Um, you know, uh, I can tell you with twins, for example, I've met very few twins who are both the same number. So again, you know, uh, personality is made up of disposition and temperament and history and, you know, so many, it's a soup. Or, you know, it's not like a bento box. We can't take it apart. You know, it's like, good luck taking the pesto off of the pasta. You know what I mean? It's like, no, it's, it's all in there. It's a mix. Uh, can I just circle back and say something to the woman whose grandfather or father was... Grandfather is an eight, a challenger for whom having power and control and having his key, you know, it's such a big theme and having his keys taken away. So my mom is 90 and she's an eight. And uh, I think one of the scariest things for anybody but for older people is the loss of independence and the ability to make their own decisions about their own lives. It's more difficult for eights because this is so important to them than it is for other types. But because you know that person is an eight, because you now can see the world through their lenses, you can go, oh, this is why this hurts so bad. I get it. And you see what happens with the Enneagram is it awakens a level of compassion and understanding in you for other people because you realize, Grandpa doesn't see the world through the same glasses I do. And I know a little bit about the way he sees the world. And because of that, I can love and serve him with great compassion, knowing, well, of course, this is how you would feel. Yeah? I mean, that's the beauty of it. It's one of the reasons I, I, I love it so much. Sir. You, um, you really touched something when you said that we would ideally live right in the, in the center. Yes. And, it re, and I have a very superficial knowledge of the Enneagram. I think I'm a three, and it seems to fit. Um, I married someone that I think is a six, and I am a, 
my superficial knowledge of the Enneagram says that it is healthy for me to move toward a six. It, it, my, my question is not so much for new information, but maybe to open up a dynamic piece that I found really helpful and to hear you talk about how we're not just, um, I'm, I'm not just a three, but it really is a dynamic system. And as I understand it, I should move more toward a six and stay away from the nine, you know, in, in, in terms of my own using the system to be healthy. Would you just open that up a little bit? Because I think that dimension, that dynamic dimension of the system itself would be very helpful. Okay, I will, but, uh, so, but I want you to remind me something after I ask you, answer your question, which is to talk to you about why you're not a three. Okay, so let me just, I'll answer your question first. Am I a four? No, if you were a four, I would know because you'd be, you'd be wearing a jacket with that lining. I have one like that at home. <laughs> you want that, don't you? <laughs> I want you to want it. Come on. <laughs> That's a four right there. Okay, so, yes, so we, we didn't have time to go into that. So the Enneagram... Uh, takes into account that the human personality is adaptable, right? It's adaptive. So in different contexts, we act different ways. So we talk about stress and security. Hmm? So if we had a diagram here, I could show you this, but for a three, when uh, they're in feeling secure and good, they go to what's called the high side of six. They're in the healthy range of the six. When they're unhealthy, they go to the low side of nine. Okay, so, so again, we're, we're really going two different ways here. We got healthy, Unhe you know, average, unhealthy, right? So the, the personality can be healthy, all those things, right? And during the course of this hour, I've gone like this within my number. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's very fluid, very fluid. But it also goes across this Enneagram, not just up and down, but it goes across so that I know that, you know, when I'm heading towards stress as a four, I'm going to the low side of two. I'm gonna start acting and looking like, my motivation won't change, I will always be a four. I will just start to act and look like, oh, not so good too, unhealthy too. But when I'm doing great, I go to the high side of one, yay ones, where I actually stop just fantasizing in this melancholy state about the play I've been meaning to write, and I actually get off my butt and do it. I get it done and I do it well. I get, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I don't think it's determinative, because I, I hate it when people go, that's a, that's a, that's a hard and fast rule. I'm like, eh, I just think it's like, don't be surprised if, as a four, you start to act like an unhealthy two. But people surprise us all the time. That's just part of the game, you know? It's like, people start to do things you don't expect. Now, let me just tell you why you're not a three. I, <laughs> boy, that was presumptuous, wasn't it? So, what the Enneagram... So, so you can tell me if you'll tell us who Trump is. <laughs> Tough crowd, man. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. So, all right. Um, when, I, when I teach the Enneagram, one of the things I tell people is, I'm not gonna tell you who you are. The Enneagram will not tell you who you are. It's gonna tell you who you aren't. So let me explain what I mean by that. Your threeness, okay, is born, uh, from a particular wound, historical wound, in our past. These are traits and dispositions partly born out of your innate gifting. Uh, they're born from your needing to, know, there's a whole host of things that you're trying to address as a little child. You're just trying to get your needs met. Your needs for esteem, approval, affection, right? 
for mastery, for power. This is all Father Thomas Keating, right? We're trying to get these needs met. And what you learned was, if you were a three, was, man, if I can just do these things, people really pay attention. I get stroked for it, and I get my needs met. And then you start to inflate and exaggerate these behaviors, and then you hold on to them long after the threats of early childhood are gone, and you're continuing to use them at 50, and it doesn't work you as know, well. You know, this is getting it. much too scary. I know, <laughs> I know. But that actually is part of the journey, is a little scary. It's a, like when you first learn about your number, part of you would probably go, oh gosh, that smells like bad tuna. You know, it's like you're, do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, ow, it's a little hurt. Because it actually exposes what we're not. Who you truly are is the one who's being gazed upon by the loving God. When you are healthy, all those dispositions and traits are no longer insert, those three traits and dispositions, all that stuff, is no longer in service to your ego or your false self and getting the world to organize its priorities around your life program. It's really in service to uh, embodying and giving, you know, uh, and reflecting out to the world the glory of God, right? And if you were one, the goodness of God. And, and that's who you truly are. So what I'm actually exposing when I'm doing the Enneagram isn't about really about who you are. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm a four, I'm not a four. That's what I've been believing my whole life, is that I am my personality. You are not your personality. Thanks be to God, right? I mean, you're not the sum total just of how you act, think, and feel on a daily basis. You are infinite. You are the one in the Christian tradition who say, who is hidden in Christ. You know what I mean? Like that, it's a powerful, beautiful mystery. Only God knows the entire totality of your person. It's your journey and adventure to find out en route to that far off country, right? Who am I? And how do I best reflect the giftedness God has given me and not use it in service to my false self by creating this personality of mirrors and getting people to, you know, because we can be fairly calculated with our personalities, right? And manipulative. I mean, that which started out as a survival technique as little kids, now somehow another somewhere along the way has been turned into a tool for protecting ourselves and getting our needs met on our terms without God needing to be involved. Look at the poor guy, he's going, he's like, he's like I need a drip bag of Prozac, I need to go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry and about that if that was bad news. All right, it looks like we've got a couple more people who want to ask questions, so how about we do these last two as our final questions. Oh man, okay. I'm just starting to have fun, keep going. Hi, Ian. Um, Hi. I have not heard of, uh, as your mother said, the angiogram, <laughs> nine <laughs> personality aspects, so it's, I'm sorry, but it's completely lost on me. The reason I um, am here tonight is because of probably your first book, uh, oh, Jesus, yeah. my, the CIA, my father. And <laughs> well, my first book was Chasing Francis, and my second book was Jesus, my father, the CIA, and me. But if you'd like to conflate them, okay. that's fine. <laughs> it, it would be fascinating to get St. Francis and my father, who was an alcoholic in the CIA, together in the same yes. space. Yes. That's a, that's well, a little I, screenplay right there. That's going to be good. I read that book uh, just a week ago. I picked it up just by happenstance, and then I saw in the paper that you were going to be here tonight. Oh. So I wanted to ask you a question about AA, actually. About AA? Yes. Oh, okay. Would that be okay? Sure. All right. Um, I am about four years into sobriety right now. and Come on. Um, <laughs> Hooray. I uh, have been attending AA meetings, but I feel like I've gotten the message. And I live with a, um, also a very long time recovering alcoholic. And um, 
do I have to keep going? <laughs> do you go to do you go to AA regularly? You know, I come from a. a, a I love a, these personal questions. Trump, do you still go to AA meetings? This is, <laughs> is this a Lutheran thing? I'm just curious. <laughs> Luther, sin boldly. I mean, go for it. Uh, it's, uh, I come from a real big book thumping background, and even when I changed meetings, they everybody thought I started drinking again. It's like, no, I'm going to a different meeting because yeah. it was easier to get to. And Can you just tell me your first name? Gail. So, Gail, thank you, first of all, for sharing a little bit of your story with us and for asking a really important question. Okay? So I just want to first acknowledge that. Um, you're... I can just tell you this, that the journey to sobriety is not something to be done alone. And maintaining sobriety is more than just about not drinking. You know that. Mm -hmm. It's about mm, the peculiar way that people with substance addictions think. Right? As you know, it's not about the drinking, it's about the thinking. Drinking is the easy part to change, actually, relative to the thinking that has to get sorted out among addicts. And by the way, nobody in here is not an addict. It just means, you know, mine might be a little bit more public because it can end up in the police blotter. But actually, some of yours can too. <laughs> but you all know that, right? This is human condition stuff. There's not a person in this room who today has not acted in a compulsive and addicted fashion and in a way that is disturbing your relationships with other people. Look at your personalities. A compulsive, predictable, habitual patterns of relating to the world that continually get you into trouble, oftentimes. Not all the time, but oftentimes, right? Okay, I want to just acknowledge the fact that we are not alone in this room. <laughs> it must be done in community. We need community. Wherever you find, I can't tell you to continue on with meetings. I do continue on in meetings. I don't go every day like I did in early sobriety, but I do know this, it cannot be done alone. In part because the human heart is fundamentally self-deceptive. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not trying to put us down, but we can, especially in the addicted mind, I mean, right? I mean, we can talk ourselves into the craziest stuff. If I could tell you about like the crazy gymnastics my brain used to do to, in order to justify just one more, right? So I'll just say, Thank you, and I think wherever you find community that supports you on, in remaining not only abstinent from whatever substance it was that uh, you found yourself roped into, but also into right thinking. Yeah? And the Buddhists are so good at this, into right thinking. Then, if that works, then you're, you're able to remain sober. But just, I would just always say, be very careful of thinking you can go it alone. Thank you. All right. we, okay, so we've got uh, one final question. And after that, by the way... I don't know what number Trump is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> got it. <laughs> Hi. Um, the Enneagram has been really powerful for me over the last couple of years. Um, I feel like I've done a lot of um, self-development, personal growth work. Um, I'm a one. And, um, <laughs> yeah. Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch. A healthy one on the Enneagram. And Atticus Richard Finch. Oh, yeah. I wish I'd had him as a father. And Richard Rohr is a one, too. And Richard's a one. <laughs> Which King. makes me feel better. <laughs> no. Richard, and Richard, listen to my podcast with him. We, we had two episodes yeah, together a couple weeks ago. Oh, bless you. Yeah. Um, 
He's a wonderful one. Yeah. yeah. So um, I feel like something I've really worked on um, in the last couple of years is developing good boundaries, having mm. boundaries. And I'm curious about your thoughts on, I feel like sometimes I get pushback on that from like people of faith, like other Christians, like having good boundaries isn't um, self-sacrificial or humble or you sort of like you're putting Oh, you mean like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, that's kind of the message. Like, well, Jesus wouldn't have, but you know what I'm saying? It's like yeah. we did. Right. And so I'm just curious on your thoughts on kind of that tension or if there is a tension there with having good boundaries because I find it to be a really powerful concept in my life, but yet sometimes I feel like it conflicts with my faith or with other people of faith in my yeah. life. Yeah. So let me just tell you a little bit about boundaries and really, really short. So when we're little kids, we start to have these things called boundaries. They're uh, psychological boundaries. And what they do for us is... They, they help us know who to let in, who is safe, and who to keep out because they're not. Right? So we just have boundaries that, right? Now, some people have, like, for example, fives, I think, have the tallest and thickest uh, emotion, psychological and emotional boundaries on the Enneagram. That's not a bad or good thing. It just is. That's all it is. It just is. Other numbers have much lower, like, you know, basically their boundaries are a little bit lower. <laughs> Quite a bit lower, and so people, there's, there's, there's a little trouble keeping out the ones who shouldn't come in. And keep, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like too many people are coming in and out, like it's like got a revolving door on it, right? Boundaries are healthy. They're healthy. They, they help us differentiate. I am me, and you are you, and we're not all merged together. It's like we are differentiated, individuated human beings. I have a, a space here that says you may not in, come into my space in a way that's violating or inappropriate. You, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, you got to have good boundaries, you know. Um, and I think there are times when our boundaries become too rigid. And then, oh boy, this is hard to get into a, a succinct answer. We have to monitor and regulate and keep watch over our boundaries to make sure that we're... Um, that they're movable, <laughs> that they're a fence that we can move and, you know, and that it can, they can change to accommodate different situations. There are times when I would throw a boundary up really high for one person doing one thing and maybe another person doing the exact same thing for different reasons and I would lower it and be and gentle more toward this person and be very good. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, we just have to be aware, monitoring and regulating all the time in so again, not living reactively or rigidly, but responsibly and flexibly. That's the best okay. answer I can give you in short. Don't everyone start applying, applauding quite yet. This always happens. Thank you. Um, Ian, would you just come up here for a second? Yes. Thank you all for coming out. Really glad you were here again. Thanks especially to our first time attendees. We hope you'll see you back in February. Ian, we are so glad you've been with us. And we have a little gift for you. Oh, thank you. It's a little you. piece of granite. And it says, uh, with thanks to Ian Cron for bringing faith to life. Oh, and we thank, thank you. you so very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ken.